0: You know, we're at that time. This is the last um, lecture uh, in the School of Theology for this, uh, this uh, spring. Next week, uh, we have a Q&A session. Now, uh, w- we've forgotten, Neil is about to amend that in a minute, but we were going to leave little cards on the table, and uh, Neil's going to bring some, hopefully from somewhere. Uh, in the next, within the next uh, half hour or so. Um, but if you have a question about um, eschatology, now, let, let's try and limit it to the topic that we've been considering uh, this uh, spring. But if you do have a question that you want to ask, uh, we're going to have a Q&A session next week. It will be open to questions from the floor But priority will be given to questions that you submit uh, in advance. And there are several ways of doing that. I'm making this up as I go along. But there are several ways that you can do that. One is uh, that you can bring the question with you next week and just hand it to me at 6.15. That's probably the least preferable since I won't have any time to think about an answer. Uh, But you're perfectly... uh, within your rights to do that, just bring a question next week uh, with you that you've thought about this week. Or, uh, and this is, this applies to those of you in this room and those of you who may be listening to this uh, before next Wednesday, uh, you can submit it to me by email. Uh, if you know my phone number, uh, you can text that to me. Uh, you can drop it in at the office. You can call Eve or email it to Eve. So there are multiple ways of getting a question to me. Uh, and we, we need about, you know, we need 7 or 8 or 10 or 15 questions to f- fill in the 45 minutes that we have for next week. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to do that. But uh, do, do uh, submit your uh, questions. Um, if we have time, uh, we can address our questions relating to other matters too. So the descent into hell clause that, that always comes up in every Q&A that I've ever done, uh, ever, uh, that question comes up and you can ask that question again uh, next week. But let's try uh, and limit the questions to um, eschatology and, uh, and the tough ones I'm going to pass over to Dr. Davis uh, and uh, I'll, I'll go for the easy ones. Uh, now, if you've got an outline, uh, if you haven't, there's one, um, Retta is in charge of the outlines I see uh, this evening. It's always good to see Retta here. And um, we're on uh, our millennialism. uh If you're in Britain, it's amillennialism, but it's, uh, it's our millennialism I think, here. Uh, we've looked at, uh, well, let me pray first and then let me, let me open it up. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you again in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We come to you as your children, adopted into your family. We come with hope, assurance, that the Lord Jesus sits upon a throne That the future is in his hands, that there is no uncertainty about it for him. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you with tomorrow, our own personal futures, and the future of the world and the universe. We pray tonight again as we. Think about those things which have been revealed, the secret things belonging to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, and we want to try and understand once again what it is that you have revealed concerning the millennium, the 1,000 years in the book of Revelation. So grant us uh, wisdom, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read again from Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And it's this reference to a thousand years Um, mille in Latin meaning a thousand hence the term millennium Um, it's the reference to this one thousand years that's caused uh, us to ask and the church to ask when is this one thousand years is it a literal one thousand years has it already begun is it sometime in the future if it's in the future what 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 is, how is it to be understood in relationship to uh, the second coming? Is the millennium before the second coming or is it after the second coming? So we've, uh, we've looked together and I'm on, uh, sorry I forgot to put page numbers in today, uh, but we're on the second page. Uh, preliminary observations, we're in that section. And I, I want us to follow the trajectory that we've been considering together uh, over the last two or three weeks, we, we looked. Well, we looked first of all at dispensationalism, and then, uh, then we looked at um, premillennialism, and then we looked at postmillennialism, and and now tonight we're going to look at our millennialism. And just, uh, I, I mean, I mean no. Um, adverse or judgmental uh, thing by grouping these in the way that I'm now going to group them, but but this is this is just a matter of fact so that we can better understand these positions. And I'm saying first of all that those that view the millennium occurring after the Second Coming uh, fall into two camps. Uh, so there 's the second coming and, and, and Jesus, Jesus comes he either he either comes as the second coming and he, and he descends to the earth or or he, he comes in a kind of two stage thing and he comes to the clouds and and raptures the saints. that would be dispensationalism um, and 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 then some period after that comes all the way down. Uh, to the earth. But there are two views that view the the millennium as occurring after the second coming in some form or fashion. And and that is dispensationalism and historic or classical uh, premillennialism. Uh, There's a world, there's a universe of a difference. Let me just clarify again that there's a universe of a difference between dispensationalism and classic historic premillennialism. Classic historic premillennialism is a view that can be held uh, perfectly well within, say, the orbit of the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession doesn't doesn't tie you down on the millennium and, and... Frankly, there were premillennials and post-millennials in the Westminster Assembly. So there are premillennialists probably in this room. Uh, there are premillennialists perhaps on our staff, and uh, we're all we're all that's not an issue. Uh, dispensationalism is an entirely different thing. Th- they're both on the same page on this particular issue that the millennium occurs after the second coming. But dispensationalism involves an entirely different view of the nature of revelation from Genesis through to, uh, to the book of Revelation. Viewing God as working differently and according to different principles and different goals within different epochs. So that this particular age in which we find ourselves in, the church age, is, in one sense, a a parenthesis to the main goal, uh, which has to do with Israel. Uh, Those that view the millennium as occurring before the second coming, uh, and there are two groups here too, Post millennialism and our millennialism. So the millennium will take place and then the second coming. Now, for post millennialists, the millennium hasn't started yet. It is in the future. It is a golden age view, whether it's a literal thousand years or, or as with most of them, prob- probably not a literal thousand years, but a, a golden age of worldwide. Revival and blessing, where the world is—and now, by using this term, I may—I may sound as though I'm—this is pejorative—but—but the world is Christianized in some form or fashion. That would include; it would necessarily include a, a worldwide conversion of Jews. Not just Jews in Palestine, but diaspora Jews, Jews wherever they are, but, but ethnic Jews, uh, in fulfilment of a, a particular understanding of Romans 11:26, and all Israel, m- meaning ethnic Jews, will be uh, saved. Now, our millennialism views the millennium as, al- as already begun, so that the millennium begins with Pentecost as a consequence of the resurrection and ascension of uh, Jesus. A fundamental change takes place at Pentecost in relationship to the nations of the world. So that the gospel is no longer confined to Jerusalem and its environs, But spreads now from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And that being the evidence for the binding of Satan that's referred to here in Revelation 20. That when Satan is uh, cast into a prison for a thousand years so that he can deceive the nations no more, our millennials... View that as now, that the nations are no longer deceived. Now, I know that that may be difficult to take in when you think of, say, the Middle East, when you think of Saudi Arabia or uh, Iran, or uh, when you think of uh, North Korea or large uh, tracts of. uh, former Soviet Union or whatever, you you may say to yourself, surely Satan is alive and well and in control and is deceiving large tracts of the world. So the nations seem to me to be uh, deceived. But in comparison to the Old Covenant, in comparison to the, the Old Testament, what do you see today, but the Gospel spreading throughout the world, uh, so that would be the the principal view of our millennialism the The millennium has already begun, and it would be vu- viewed symbolically rather than literally. Uh, the term itself, our millennialism, literally means no millennium, which is somewhat misleading and and those who, who have it in for our millennialism might use the term no-millennialism, meaning they don't believe in the millennium, which is not true. Um, in contrast to both premillennial and postmillennial views, it does not anticipate a golden age either after the second coming, as some forms of premillennialism do, or before the second coming, as uh, classical post-millennialism does. Now, and because of that, some current post-millennialists uh, refer to our millennialism as pessimillennialism, millennialism," hinting at pessimism, hinting at that the our millennial view doesn't have any optimism about the future. Uh, J. Adams, just to fill in the picture here, uh, J. Adams, uh, who's A.R.P., you knew that, right? J. Adams of uh, of, uh, counseling uh, uh, fame um, and and A.R.P. sometimes doesn't use the word amillennialism, but uses the term realized um, millennialism. And I noticed that Cornelis Venema, who's uh, written a book called The Promise of the Future and uh, published by the Banner of Truth, uh, refers to it as now millennialism, uh, a phrase that I don't think is going to catch on. That's my prediction about that phrase. Uh, Now uh, millennialism. Uh, Just a brief uh, and a very brief and cursory um, history of our millennialism. There is a sense in which the term itself, amillennialism, can be traced to the 1930s or thereabouts, and there have been some attempts to to find out who was the first person to use the term amillennialism. So if you went back into the 19th century or certainly to the time of the Reformation, you wouldn't find this term amillennialism. It is a 20th century term, but that doesn't mean to say that the idea itself, the cards are now arriving and Neil will be fl- floating around discreetly in the in the hall and, and Josh, I see. So these are for your questions for next week. If you don't have a question, just keep the card. We won't charge you for it. Um, the term itself is relatively recent and a 1930s term and that will give some... Uh, though, so, some who, who are not amillennialists, some fodder for suggesting that this is a recent trend and does not represent the historical view. Uh, that would be somewhat misleading, to say the least, in that Augustine of the 4th and 5th centuries uh, was a classic amillennialist. And in some ways, although there are antecedents of the view to Augustine, but Augustine really put the mockers, uh, he he sort of killed uh, ideas of an expectation of a future 1,000 years, either before or after the second coming, a, a view that was then known as Chileism. And Augustine does this in his famous book, The City of God, in chapter 20, the binding of Satan began when the church began to spread from Judea into other regions. And lasts yet and shall do until his time be expired. And, and that, that's a classic amillennial statement. Uh, that's in harmony and in keeping with the idea that the millennium began at the time of Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension and Pentecost and the spread of the church from Jerusalem into the world. Now, having said that, that that sounds amillennial, Augustine's interpretation of Revelation 20 itself is not very specific. And you might actually say the same if you you came down to the Reformation and to Calvin. Calvin did not write a commentary, for example, on the book of uh, Revelation. And you might say uh, that Calvin, too, at the time of the Reformation, didn't have a very specific um, view of uh, Revelation. Uh, The Lutheran Church formally rejected Chileism, a a view that that looked to the future for a 1,000-year event, uh, and formally rejects it in the Augsburg Confession. Article 27 uh, condemns the Anabaptists' Uh, and others who now scatter Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall occupy the kingdom of the world, the wicked being everywhere suppressed. So that's a, well, that's a fairly strong statement uh, that would kill certainly post-millennialism uh, 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 dead, if I can put it that way. Uh, uh, likewise, the Swiss reformer Heinrich Bullinger wrote in the Second Helvetic Confession, uh, We also reject the Jewish dream. Uh, and notice it's called a Jewish dream because a golden age in the future, whether it's before or after the Second Coming, involves the conversion of Jews, and, and, and Romans 11 26. We also reject the Jewish dream of a millennium or golden age on earth before the last. Uh, judgment that's uh, the second lutheritic confession and and there have been, and to be fair both the lutheran augsburg confession and the second lutheritic confession of heinrich bullinger have been critiqued in our time as perhaps uh, and i, I want to say this carefully just as say Southern theologians, including our own Thornwell and and others, uh, have been critiqued because of uh, uh, political issues relating to the 19th century and and slavery, and so on. So, uh, Lutherans and 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 uh, 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 Bullinger and others have been critiqued because of anti-Semitism that existed uh, in. Uh, the 16th century. Now, that critique is overdone, uh, and I'm now confining myself to the 16th century critique of anti Semitism. That critique is overdone. It's a, it's a very easy charge to sort of lob out there, and it's going to stick. Once you lob that charge out there, it's going to stick so- with someone somewhere. Uh, so the blogger's fears would be alive uh, with. Comments like that, but the critique, frankly, is often done with, with little understanding of the sixteenth century and little nuance and subtlety about the sixteenth century but, but uh, uh, to be fair th- that that needs to be said. Uh, Calvin in his institutes, uh, speaking about Chileism and again a, a view of a, a thousand years in the future, uh, is a fiction. Uh, and this is Calvin now uh, at his most testy, uh, that is too childish either to need or to be worth a, refuta- a refutation. That is Calvin who hasn't had his porridge uh, that morning. Um, and Calvin could, could, and sometimes often does sound like that. Uh, he interpreted the thousand year period of Revelation 20 non literally, applying it to the various disturbances that awaited the church while still toiling on earth a statement that sounds very much like an R millennial sort of statement. Well, today uh, I've just gathered some n- names of some repute uh, who are representatives of classic R millennialism, and some of these guys would defend R millennialism with, with, uh, with ferocity that's not the right term but with, with, uh, as a matter of principle. Let me put it that way. Uh, Anthony Huckerman, uh, The Bible and the Future. It's probably my favorite book of all on matters of eschatology. gehardus Voss, The Pauline Eschatology, which I've read three times and I still don't understand it. Uh, it's, it's a very difficult book to read. Uh, uh, Burkauer, uh, William, Fox, uh, William Cox, uh, who's probably least known today, was, was very well known in the 1970s and 80s. But Probably the most influential book of all, and still continues to influence uh, interpretations. Uh, and I think Greg Beale, uh, whose commentary on Revelation, all 1,500 pages of it, uh, actually owes its origin, I think, to Hendrickson's um, More Than Conquerors, uh, which was a commentary on Revelation, basically, but still uh, an exercise of tremendous uh, impact. Um, so that when I was at seminary, for example, um, in the dark ages, in the mid-1970s, um, uh, uh, when I was at seminary, which is now, which is now you know, 40 years ago, uh, Horace, um, if, I did a, if I did a straw poll of my class in seminary, let's say we're talking 30, 35 students, I would say that 80% of them would have been post-millennial. I I don't think I'm exaggerating. Ralph, am I exaggerating? Can you remember that far back? Uh, uh, Post-millennialism in the mid-1970s was just very, very popular. Uh, and and, And I don't think that was merely true of... The seminary I was in, uh, uh, but, but it was certainly more true of the seminary that I was in than, say, Westminster Seminary in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, if I did a straw poll of, of the class that I teach on a Monday uh, in Atlanta, uh, and it's a class, let's say it's a class of 20 to 25 students, there isn't a single postmillennialist in the class. Uh, and that's been true uh, ever since I've been teaching, uh, which is over 20 years. Uh, they're, they're really hard to find. Uh, the old post-millennialist vanguard are still there. And uh, Ken Gentry, for example, uh, you can, uh, who was in my class uh, back in the 1970s, uh, is still blogging away. saw something that he wrote today and still uh, defending the same view uh, with the same tenacity and, same, uh, and, and And he's probably one of the best defenders of post-millennialism out there. Um, but uh, our millennialism certainly has kind of taken over as as the default sort of position. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm trying not to judge the thing. I'm just saying that I think, as an analysis statistical analysis, that's probably uh, probably true. And uh, Greg Beal, uh, who is. Uh, Prominent today uh, teaching New Testament at Westminster in uh, Philadelphia. Um, um, his, his, his view of, uh, of eschatology s- certainly seems to uh, dominate uh, the scene uh, currently. Uh, main features of our millennialism, and uh, these are uh, simply main features, and you may want uh, I, I reproduced the, the little charts because it provided some of you with something to look at uh, while you switched off uh, maybe and uh, but l- take the chart the R millennial chart again, and uh, let me let me just walk through that chart uh, briefly. Um, And I'm somewhat naughty in the box below uh, when I say close to our millennial theologians uh, when I lump uh, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, and John Calvin um, in, in, in that. But that's, I, I think that's loosely true. Um, but you notice uh, on the chart you've got Christ's birth, uh, the first advent, Follow the line across, and then you've got the resurrection and ascension, and then that being the beginning of the millennium, Satan being bound, uh, being cast into the pit for a thousand uh, years, evident uh, by the spread of the gospel, and, and Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations. So we are in the millennium. In other words, this, this millennium is viewed um, in a symbolic way rather than in a, in a literal way. And uh, Christ is presently reigning in heaven, the idea of the triumph of the spiritual kingdom of God in the midst of the rise of evil in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. So, our millennials, let me go back to the uh, main features. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is now. Now. a thousand years uh, being uh, ten cubed, right? So the idea of three cubed, ten times ten times ten, ten digits, three persons of the Trinity. You know, these are not these are these are numbers that are deeply symbolic. John is playing with numbers. Uh, so a thousand years then being viewed as ten to the power of. Uh, three, um, kingdom is now. Uh, s- secondly, um, the signs of the times. Uh, now what are the signs of the times? And, and we looked at this um, several weeks ago now. Uh, and, and there are signs of a blessing. But let's confine ourselves now to signs of opposition. Opposition. Um, tribulation, apostasy uh, the spirit of antichrist uh, the appearance of the man of sin uh, in uh, Paul in uh, in, um, Thessalonians uh, that those are viewed as present realities rather than um, specific events that occur at specific moments uh, in history as though revelation uh, was predicting an unfolding of events uh, a- along a calendar uh, so that this event will occur on this date and then it will be followed by that event on that date and, and another event on another date so that you can, you can sort of begin to predict, as it were, the end times uh, along a, a calendrical uh, sort of uh, basis. But seeing, just as the millennium itself is viewed as a, as a general symbolic feature, so these signs of the times, the millennial times, the times that we are in, uh, there are uh, evidences of tribulation and apostasy and the spirit of Antichrist. Now, that's not to say, right, and our millennialists uh, understand that in the book of Revelation, Satan will be released for a little while. And during that period when Satan is released for a little while, prior to the second coming, uh, there, uh, there are events. Uh, that seem to be predicted including a a battle in Revelation 20 um, the battle of Armageddon the great great battle against Satan uh, so that there are millennialists who will be somewhat optimistic about the general future and the advance of the gospel and an expectation of great periods of success and so on and then you add to that The idea and concept, say, of revival, that there are periodic revivals. At lunchtime today, we were talking about David Brainerd, uh, who lived 29 years and and, and died in the uh, 1740s, but lived through, in that brief life of his, lived through two Episodes, two aspects of what we now generally call the Great uh, Awakening uh, in New England, in in which um, hundreds of thousands, some some would would suggest maybe half a million, maybe six hundred thousand souls were saved in the in a matter of a couple of years, two or three years or so. Um, just uh, God doing what He ordinarily does, but d- doing it in greater numbers and doing it in a more condensed period of time, which we call a, a revival. I don't mean the kind of advertisements you see out in the country that there's a revival next week, or, or that the revival has been has been extended for another week. Uh, not that kind of revival, but but a sovereign outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, our millennialists are all over the map on that, and, and if, you're, uh, if you're in the banner of truth, say Ian Murray, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, if you're in that sort of group, you, you um, I hope Sinclair is going to listen to this now um, uh, but uh, an expectation of periodic revivals and, and um, advances Enormous advances of the gospel uh, in certain parts of the world, and, and we, we would evidence that in uh, the revival in in the first decade of the twentieth century in Korea, for example, a famous revival or, or revivals that have taken place in, in China uh, and, and so on. Um, but all of that. So, so to say that our millennials are not optimistic about the future would would not. Be right. There, there are, are millennials who who expect periods of revival. Then, just to muddy the waters even further, uh, John Murray, for example, um, uh, just as an example, but John Murray's commentary on Romans, for example, in, in his commentary on uh, Romans eleven twenty six, expected a future conversion of the Jews. I sit on a board of uh, an organization called Christian Witness to Israel uh, and uh, seeks to evangelize Jews in some of the great cities of the world, um, mainly in Europe and and more recently in North uh, America. And um, uh, Many of those board members uh, believe that Romans 11.26 is predicting a future conversion of Jews prior to uh, the second coming. I'm not myself absolutely exegetically persuaded of that, except on Thursdays. And um, I, I think it's a it's a valid it's a valid argument uh, for sure. I, I'm I'm not I'm not, uh, and I have at points in my life accepted that argument, and and I'm in a phase now where I'm I'm not so persuaded of that, but. You, but, but John Murray's interpretation, say, of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, if you can remember that lesson that we did, is a classic amillennial interpretation of Matthew 24. So you can be an amillennial and be optimistic about the future without, without buying into the golden age view that would be true, say, of post-millennialism. And to be perfectly fair here, the lines are fuzzy. So, the line from our millennialism to optimistic our millennial to post millennial that that line is fuzzy it 's very fuzzy uh, and and sometimes there'll be a banter back and forth uh, from either side, not sure where where no man 's land is, where you cross from one uh, into uh, into the other um, so the signs of the times then uh, as as present now rather than predicting some, some event uh, in the future. Uh, as for Revelation 20, most amillennialists read Revelation 20 as depicting the entire history from first to second advent. Uh, one of the distinguishing features of postmillennialists is that they tend to read Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 as chronologically successive so, so, Revelation 20 chronologically coming on the timeline of history after Revelation, um, Re- Revelation 19. And that would distinguish our millennialists from post-millennialists. And, and then, uh, fourthly, uh, just the question of optimism. And this is, well, this is, um, this is difficult. It's very subjective. Uh, you know, how optimistic are you about the future? Uh, I mean, it's fascinating to play that off against sort of current political statements about optimism about the future, which is based on a purely secular, sometimes with a dose of fundamentalist Christianity sort of thrown in there somewhere... Uh, about the future? How optimistic are you about the future? Uh, Is the future open-ended? Well, from a Christian point of view, uh, eschatology is all about the now and the future, and and our millennialists are optimistic in the sense that, yes, Jesus is going to triumph. Uh, Yes, all the elect are going to be gathered. Uh, Is the church going to be small or Big, You know, one of the questions that's, that arises in these kinds of discussions are, are there more that are saved than are lost? And, and that's been a, a, a discussion. Um, how optimistic are you? What, when Jesus comes again, what will be the state of the church in the world? Will it be a small... Tiny persecuted church, or will it be a, a, a church that's growing and advancing and and, and able to be recognised in all the the countries of the world? And you can be you can be an amillennialist and answer that question in different ways. Um, the the one thing. Uh, the, the one principal thing that distinguishes an amillennialist from a postmillennialist is that an amillennialist doesn't look for a millennium at a, at a golden age in the future. But does that, mean, does that mean that the future is optimistic or pessimistic? And that's, that's a much more subjective analysis. And uh, I, I could bring to the table here are millennials who are fairly pessimistic about the future and and are millennials who are fairly optimistic about the future. And I'm talking about the future before Jesus comes. Um, I, I don't regard that particular question... It's an interesting enough question. I think it's a question that we need to ask in the light of some parables that Jesus tells of the mustard seed that's small and then grows to be the biggest uh, tree in, 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 um, in, the, in, the, in the parable, suggesting, I think, a, a great deal of optimism. Postmillennialists see that as as vindicating an optimistic view of the future. Um, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail uh, a, a, Against it, Um. so uh, you've got uh, you've got these three principal views. Uh, I'm I'm ruling out dispensationalism. Hope that doesn't offend anyone. Um, But historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and uh, and and postmillennialism are, are are three. Uh, views uh, with regard to uh, the millennium uh, that are within the bounds of, say, the Westminster um, Confession. Now, I'm sure you have questions uh, about this, and, and maybe in the fall, you remember, we did personal eschatology, so we, we talked about. Um, death and the intermediate state and uh, the judgment and judgment according to works and rewards and we talked about heaven, are there dogs in heaven? Remember we we went through all of that uh, in the fall uh, and we were dealing uh, this spring with more general um, eschatology rather than personal eschatology. But all of that uh, let's, uh, let's bring all of that material to bear for the Q&A for next week you've got a card uh, you can write your question on the card um, and, and hand it in if you want to hand it in tonight that's fine but hand it to me or, or to one of the ministers here perhaps that would be the easiest thing uh, And uh, but if you want to email that question or if you have my phone you can text me that question uh, during the course uh, of this week and um, uh, we 'll we'll, uh, we'll see if we can um, answer some of these questions in a way that 's profitable uh, for for next uh, for next um, wednesday evening well let 's pray together father we uh, we thank you thank you that the Lord Jesus has the world in his hands thank you that despite the warning of opposition and apostasy and the release of Satan for a little while and the consequences of that. And we wouldn't want in any way to belittle that or, or, or disregard what those consequences might be in terms of a very real opposition and persecution for the church. But we thank you for the promise that oversees and uh, supersedes all of that, that um, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So grant us now your continued uh, blessing, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.